Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right, well, we're in Genesis 33, I believe. Uh, We're in the middle of tracing out Jacob and his life. We have the first 11 chapters cover the history of the world from creation up unto the call of Abram's family. And then from chapter 12 on, we have this huge section on Abraham that goes to about chapter 24. We have a small section on Isaac. And then we have another huge section on Jacob. And there's a sense in which the whole rest of the book is about Jacob, because even though we change and focus on Joseph in chapter 37, Jacob lives almost to the whole end of the book. So we've asked a couple times why such a small section on Isaac, right? It's almost like he's only there as a bridge between Abraham and Jacob. But that's something to think about and chew on. Why, why so little time on Isaac? Uh, but we're in chapter 33. Jacob has wrestled with this unknown person overnight in the dark, gotten a name change because of it. Uh, his new name means alter- alternately, right? Either wrestles with God or God wrestles, depending on how we take that. But he's on his way to meet Esau, the brother that he fled from, right? He went to Mesopotamia ostensibly to get wise, but really to get away from Esau because Esau was hopping mad. Esau knows he's coming back. Esau is on his way to meet him with a whole bunch of armed men. Jacob has divided his retinue into two camps. He sent a whole bunch of gifts ahead of him to try and mollify Esau before he encounters him face to face. And here we are. We are now at the point where he actually comes into Esau's presence. So Genesis 33, starting at verse 1. Let me pray before I read that. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to to gather around your word with a cup of coffee and a biscuit to read and consider and discuss together. We thank you for the week that you've given. We thank you for the fog this morning. We pray that you would turn it into rain uh, for our crops, for our livestock, for our pastures. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. We thank you for the gift of your word that we are able not just to hear and understand, but to hold in our own hands, our own copies of. We pray that you'd help us to treasure this precious gift. And we pray that you'd be with us as we consider Genesis this morning, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds by your spirit. We might understand and apply your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. 
So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel which means God, the God of Israel. What do you see? And what questions do you have? Well, Esau's reaction seems to be better than Jacob anticipated. And yet, even at the end of the chapter, Jacob still doesn't seem to trust him. Yes. As Esau's favor, it seems, but there's a continuing uneasiness between them. I think that goes both ways. Or is that just Jacob? feels like Jacob. I mean, that's one of the questions I have is, Esau is really acting like what you would expect a believer to act like in this story. And so you, you know, it brings back the Esau I hated, but Isaac. Um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Right, and so I guess in my mind when I first read that the, the preceding text, you know, um, all sorts of questions about election and whether he is chosen by God or not go into my mind, and I, I think I assume that he is not, right? But then when you read the way he responds here, and has every right to be mad and hold a grudge and be angry and you know extract a pound of flesh, if you will, he chooses not to. So I think it's one-sided, and it, it brings into question to me, you know, that there's a maybe a distinction that. Maybe the hating of Esau had nothing to do with whether he was 
among God's elect or not, but maybe among just that amongst just that set of circumstances at that individual point in time that he did not favor Esau there. I don't know. Okay. There are personalities that can be very like well bipolar, like everything's great and I'm so happy to see you and then the next moment everything's terrible, I'm gonna kill you. And it sounds like like we've seen Esau being angry before and like he seems it seems like what we see of Esau is this extreme here. I'm so hungry. I'll die if you don't give me this stew. And I'm so angry that you stole this. And then, I'm so glad to see you. Yeah. Like, that's not a personality you trust. That's, even when they're happy, it's like, I'm glad you're having a good day. Yeah. But I'm going to keep my distance. It makes you wonder, like, what set of circumstances has Esau gone through while Jacob's been away that has brought him to this place? Right. I mean, if you feel like, you know, you're owed your pound of flesh, right? And now I've got the ability to extract it. Your human nature is, well, let's go extract it, right? But that's not what happens. And so it just may speak to a journey that um, Esau went through while they were away that's changed the very person he is. I don't, I don't know. It's a question I have because you get two kind of polar opposite views of Esau in the text. Well, it could, it could be that basically he may have been part of the elect, but not but acting outside of God in the beginning. Right, and that was what I was saying is that yeah. maybe there's a distinction there in the beginning that this not favoring Esau was an isolated, right, non-favor, not a yeah. life and true, and maybe he was not elect, and this second one is just God's will. So yeah, that's true. Lots of questions for me. So one thing you touched on is the difference in circumstances. What position were both brothers in last time they saw each other? Well, they were um, trying to get the favor of Isaac. Yeah, they've been battling over the blessing, which Jacob procured. But then Esau is the one who stayed when Jacob left, which means on the one hand, Esau is there to take over the family business, to invest the wealth of his father, to tend the flocks, to get something from that. And something appears to have happened in that regard. Isaac's still around, although he doesn't feature in this narrative. It's a couple chapters before we'll see him pass away, and those brothers will come together again to bury him. But in the meantime, Esau seems to have done pretty well for himself. He settled in Seir, which is on the far side of the Jordan, up in hill country on a plateau that is essentially impregnable. Right? This is the area where the Edomites uh, will later carve fortresses into the rock in canyons that are at some points narrower than this room in Petra. You may have seen, well, if you've seen uh, Indiana Jones and the, the last... Crusade. Some of the filming is in Petra, where they go to this narrow canyon and there's the buildings carved into the rock. Like this is the area where Esau settles. And as he is settled there, among whatever else he has, he's able to muster 400 military aged males at his command. So whatever he has or hasn't experienced of the blessing he hoped to procure from his father, He's done quite well for himself apart from that. 
Meanwhile, last time he saw Jacob, right, was probably a trail of dust on the horizon as the little brother is hightailing it out of there to try and be safe. And he's coming back with two camps and with all of this livestock such that he can give an over-the-top gift to try and ensure that Esau will receive him well without, it, without taking too large of a hit, right? So they've both done incredibly well. They're not in the position that they were at the beginning. And perhaps Esau sees in Jacob's ability to come back with two wives, two concubines, 12 sons, and a daughter, in addition to whatever other people are in his household and all of this livestock, that maybe his father's blessing has actually meant something for Jacob. And so the question I asked, well, well, that came up in the discussion, right, is this uneasiness between Jacob and Esau, is it one-sided or is it both sides? Jacob seems much more the cautious and suspicious one. But don't miss Esau's attempt to control things by trying to insist that Jacob and all of his family come with him rather than, which is on the east side of Jordan, rather than going home to Isaac and Rebekah, which would have been on the west side of the Jordan, kind of west or southwest of the Dead Sea instead of east or southeast of the Dead Sea. So he's very, very insistent on, right? He doesn't go quite all the way of just leaving armed men with Jacob anyway, right? He still couches it as an offer, but he just almost won't leave the offer alone. You see that in their, in their conversation, uh, even as, you know, verse 15 and on. So, so I think they're both wary. They're both surprised at what they see in the other's condition or estate, we might see. They're both wary. I think the tension between the brothers is unresolved, even though this is on the surface a peaceful encounter. My Greek instructor, Richard Beck, he, his father grew up in eastern Oklahoma in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and he made a comment about something his father had said about eastern Oklahoma at that time. And he said it was a very polite society because no one wanted to know what was under another gentleman's coat. You've probably heard the line that an armed society is a polite society, right? And it's almost like this encounter between Jacob and Esau is like that. They both see in the other one a threat. And so they're very polite to one another in this encounter because they're not sure Esau is the stronger, but Jacob is the one with the favor. And so neither is certain which one would have the upper hand. If it came to blows. Good. What else do you see? Jacob is getting ready to meet Esau. The, the order in which he places his family seems to be that of the favor that he grants to his family. But then he puts himself in front, which I think that's probably good. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things we might reflect on there. One is that just as we saw with Abraham, but more particularly with Isaac, 
So we're seeing with Jacob just clear, open favoritism. But it's subtly hinted at here, and it will become just very open and blatant just a few chapters later. So much so, right, that he will give Joseph a special coat. Whatever the word means, whether it means long-sleeved or multicolored or or whatever, because we're not entirely sure what that word means, it very clearly signals and is meant to signal to everyone who sees him with it on that he is the favorite son, which is, of course, going to poison his relationship with his brothers. But we see that subtly here, as you mentioned, in the way that he orders the group that will come to Esau, right? The, his favorites come last in the safest spot. I'm guessing the wives didn't think it was all that subtle. Yeah, I imagine not. <laughs> Esau leaves, wanting Jacob to follow him with his flocks and all that, and Jacob talked him out of it. So then when Esau kind of gets out of sight, Jacob building a house, building stables or pens or whatever, he's kind of homesteading in that spot. He, he doesn't have it in his mind. He's going to follow This is the ultimate, just give me five more minutes, right? Just five more minutes, just five more minutes. You look over there, they're they're building an addition to the house where they're sitting. Yeah, which it seems like Esau anticipates in his insistence of leaving someone with him to guide the way to where they're going. What happens after Esau leaves? There's an element of what happens with Jacob in that homesteading that's important. Does he just pitch a tent somewhere? He buys land from Shechem's father. Yeah, he buys land, which means this is the, I believe, the second time we've seen a transaction take place. The other was with Abraham buying a burial place. So that this is the second piece of land the patriarchs own within this entire region that's been promised to them. We get a second down payment on the land promises, as it were, you're within the land of Canaan. Whereas Esau is outside the land of Canaan, right? He's east, east of those borders, which has its own significance, right? Not just because he's outside the land, but because he's outside the land to the east. Thinking about, you know, that God promised Abraham that, that land. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, it's a... So is the land he bought different from the land he built his house on? That's a good question. So he builds a house in Sukkot, and then he comes to Shechem. So I think they're close to each other, but they're different places. And he buys some land from Shechem, right? The city named after the king. Shechem is going to become a very important site in Israel's history, and it's well to the north. So the area where he's been is much further south. And Edom, right, is is way away to the southeast. But Shechem is in the central highlands, way up in the north. So Sukkoth is on the east side of Jordan. And so he moves west into Canaan when he moves into Shechem. I'm terrible with maps. But if we draw a map of Canaan... Here's the Sea of Galilee. Water comes down. Here's the Dead Sea. Edom is here. 
Sukkot is here. Shechem is about here, maybe a little bit further north. So remember when the Israelites come up out of the wilderness with Joshua, right? They encamp at Sukkot and they institute the Feast of Booths at this same location. And then after that, they cross over into the land. They cross over in a different spot, cross from Jericho. But when they come in, Shechem is going to be important for um, renewing the covenant in Deuteronomy. Um, Several other things are going to happen in Shechem over Israel's history. So it will become a very key location, even though right now it's just a place where he buys a piece of dirt. What does he do after buying the land? Erects an altar. He erects an altar. What does that answer to from a few chapters earlier? His, his promise to the Lord as he was fleeing Esau. Yeah. So in, in chapter 28, right, he leaves Beersheba. He heads toward Haran. He stays one place overnight using a rock as a pillow. And the Lord appears to him in a dream. He says in verse 15 of chapter 28, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised to you. So he wakes up. He says the Lord's in this place. He names it Bethel, house of God. And then in verse 20, he makes a vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I get, will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. He is back in the land. The Lord has protected him as he said he would. And so he is worshiping the Lord there. And he'll come all the way to Bethel in chapter 35. So we get the beginning of the fulfillment of that vow here. That's then paused because of what happens to Dinah in chapter 34. So Jacob goes back to Bethel? He'll continue from Shechem to Bethel. To Bethel. Yeah. He settles in the area of Shechem for a while. But his sons make trouble, and so then he's got to move. So we continue into chapter 34? All right. This chapter is rough. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father, Brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, 
and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our daughter like a prostitute? All right, a lot there. So much sin, so little repentance. That's a good summary. So much sin, so little repentance. What's at stake in the chapter? Freedom. Freedom, did you say? Uh, expand on that a bit. I think it says, let me see if I can find the exact verse. It kind of stuck out to me. So picking up in 22, reading for a couple verses, only on this condition will the man agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? So it was the inhabitants of the land took Dinah because they wanted to, and they fully intended, I think, based on that verse, to take everything that they wanted to, that their approach to Jacob and family was maybe it was disguised as amicable but I don't think it was at all intended to be amicable um, that once they got what they wanted that you know Dinah namely that they were going to hatch some scheme to to take whatever they wanted from Jacob and family I think the brothers so that puts Jacob and his family in peril right 
Jacob and family only have one way out. Now, the brothers either through, I don't know if I would call this righteous indignation, probably not. Most likely, it's fight or flight mode, right? Is that we really don't have the ability to fly away now because they've got our sister. Um, so the only way out of this is to muscle our way out of this. And so they hatch a scheme which is more cunning than the inhabitants of the land to really be able to um, take over the land. So I, I think, you know, the land, their freedom, I think, I think for those reasons is, you know, what I'm saying as to what was at stake. If they would have married the sisters or the daughters of the land, that it's, it's not what they were supposed to do, right? They can't, could not do that for the law. So had they done it, it would have gone against what God had said anyway. Yeah, now the law comes later, but it's grounded in earlier things. And this is a clear example of why, why we get those laws. And I think the two of you together draw that out well, that what's at stake in this chapter is far more. It's not less, but far more than Dinah's fate. Uh, there's a sense in which the entirety of the promise to Abraham is on the line in this chapter because the Shechemites clearly intend to absorb Jacob's family into their people so that they're no longer distinct. They no longer have their own identity or their own property or their own anything. Right? Are they going to be absorbed into a pagan people? It's interesting because there are multiple plots at work, right? Deceit is a clear element of the chapter that Simeon and Levi, and presumably other brothers as well, have answered Hamor and Shechem deceitfully. They're intending to trick them, but it's laid clear by verses 22 and 23 that Shechem and Hamor and their whole offer to Jacob and his family is also deceitful. So we have something that forms a part of the character of Jacob playing out in his sons and their relationship with this city. And Jacob plays almost no role in the chapter. He's there for Shechem and Hamor to come, but it's his sons who speak on Jacob. It's his sons who take action. And then at the end of the chapter, Jacob speaks in response to the action that they have taken. But that's the only active thing Jacob does in the whole chapter. Bond at the end is like, why in the world did you do this? <laughs> Well, we really didn't have a choice, Dad. We were about to lose everything that we have, including, including our identity, including our faith, right? And so I don't know where Jacob is at and all that. That's, that's a puzzle. Does it remind you of anybody else we read of where something happens to his daughter and he remains passive throughout the whole thing and, and his son has to take action to take vengeance and make things right? David. Yeah, David with Amnon and Tamar. Absalom will act on behalf of his sister. We'll see later 
that the actions that Simeon and Levi take form part of the ground for why they don't get the role of the firstborn among the tribes. As we continue over the course of Genesis, we'll find that leadership over the tribes is not given to the firstborn, who would be Reuben. We haven't seen why yet, but that'll be made clear in a couple of chapters. It's not given to Simeon or Levi, who would be next in line because of what they do here. It's given to Judah, but a driving question in the chapters that the chapters in between will hopefully answer is why Judah? Is he any more deserving than Reuben or Simeon or Levi? Is there something in his character that justifies the choice of Judah for leadership among the sons? Is the narrator on the side of Simeon and Levi? We may not be able to answer that before we end Sunday school, but that's a good question to ponder. As we read over chapter 34, is the narrator siding with Simeon and Levi in their decision and in their action? Bear in mind, the narrator can side against Jacob without agreeing with what Simeon and Levi do? That's a good question. As we read over the details of the chapter, right? Where does the narrator land? What does Moses think of the episode as a whole? Yes, just because of the last sentence. Okay. And the justification of how their daughter was treated. I mean, their sister was treated, so in defense of her. Okay. And the fact of them possibly being taken over by Shechem and Hamor. So in their thought process, yeah, this is the best thing for us to do for our family. So if you look at it that way. Okay. So on the side of saying, yes, the narrator sides with Simeon and Levi, we have him quoting them at the end. We have him quoting uh, Hamor, I think it is, or Shechem in the middle, laying bare the extent of the threat in the chapter. Uh, We also have his comments in verse 7, right? And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But on the flip side, later, when Jacob pronounces blessings on his sons, and assuming that's God's work through his words, he passes over Levi and Simeon specifically because of this incident, and they're unstable as water and so forth. And so the, Judas, the scepter passes to Judah. So that would seem to be a condemnation of this episode. Yes, that's the balance, right? So. It would be by, the condemnation would be by Jacob, though, not Moses. But in his pronouncing of a blessing that is also prophetic, right? it's the same blessing that mentions the scepter not departing from Judah, right? It's when he pronounces blessing on his sons. There's that tension. The narrator seems to be agreeing with Simeon and Levi about the nature of the threat, the extent of what's on the line, and the horrific nature of what Shechem has done, right? It's not just, okay, he got the cart before the horse and he should have proposed first, like, It's not that kind of situation at all. And yet, he also seems to be holding up Simeon and Levi's action for critique. 
That's part of the tension because Jacob doesn't do anything. We'll have similar questions in 2 Samuel with David and Absalom and Tamar, right? Does David's inaction justify Absalom's action, right? Is the narrator condoning or merely describing? Is there a cultural difference that would describe Because I think most dads today would take that into their own hands. Culturally speaking, we feel protective of our daughters, all of our children, but particularly our daughters. But in this situation, you have two instances, two examples where the father does not do that. And that that's left to, not left to, but that the brother does that. So I'm just curious as if there is a cultural undertone to, to that. David's case is a little more complicated, I think, because it happens within the family. There's an added element of incest. But I think here, part of what Jacob is weighing is that marriage ties imply kinship ties, which imply political treaties and agreements. And so he's got to balance, you know, his concern for his daughter, his concern for justice, and the whole political theater of his area and his strength over against Shechem's strength and Shechem's allies. Could it have anything to do with the fact that he's bought land from Shechem's father? Maybe. But what the narrator doesn't do is step out from behind the story and say it was good for Jacob to pause and consider, right? Where the narrator leaves us with the sense that Jacob should have done something, but not with the sense that Simeon and Levi were right to have done something just because their father didn't. Well, that's what I was wondering if we're supposed to look at it as them reacting impatiently. We were missing what would have led Jacob to do something because he was waiting patiently maybe jumping ahead of God in his decisions, like it's happened with Abraham and Isaac and everything else. But their impatience led to Jacob not being able to act patiently. We will hear. Yeah. 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 Well, and it says that Jacob waited because they were out in the field. Was he specifically kind of putting this on them to some degree? Yeah. By his inaction. I was waiting for enough people to be, go do something about it rather than him trying to go by himself. Uh, Jacob also was, uh, seemed like he was concerned for his personal safety. Uh, in verse uh, uh, 30, and, you know, it, it's, it, to me, it's, he's concerned about his safety, not remembering that God promised him to be with him and take care of him. Simeon and Levi seem similarly to have forgotten. Right? If God has promised his presence to be with him, to bless those who bless you and to curse those who dishonor you, right? Jacob has forgotten that on the one hand with his fear of Shechem's allies, the surrounding people. Simeon and Levi have forgotten or not been properly catechized in that as they take matters into their own hand against the city. So in that sense, the whole chapter um, puts on display two generations' failure to trust. 
and the younger generation resorting to the tactics of their father in his worst moments to achieve their ends by means of deceit. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for how it lays bare to us the danger of forgetting your promises, of trusting in ourselves and our own means and attempting to solve our own problems without recourse to prayer, without seeking your face. Lord, would you strengthen our faith, even as we desire to pray and work, may we do so faithfully in a way that remembers and lives in light of your promises. We pray that you would continue to be with us this morning, that you would watch over us, that you would bless us, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.